Good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to see you this afternoon. Uh, my name's Adam. I'm an elder here. Um, it's my privilege uh, to preach from God's Word today. Um, a long passage, as you would have just heard Stu read. Uh, and so I'm going to pray for us now that God would help us to understand His Word. So would you pray with me? Uh, Almighty God, uh, Creator and Judge, Help us to listen to your word. Help us to hear your word. Help us by your spirit to grasp your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts prepared this afternoon to hear what you would say to us. Um, For the glory of your name, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I hope you've got a Connect card. Um, You can follow along. Uh, the outline of the sermon. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward, hopefully. Um, But yeah, just have a look there. Now, I want to share with you a story about when I was 16. It's a a while away ago now. It's um, over half that again now. Uh, But when I was 16, I was messing around in this schoolyard, as you do, um, and I fell over. Sounds pretty innocuous, pretty lame. Um, And at the time that I fell over, I was in a bit of pain. And I got up, and I don't even know what the bone was, but the bone below my kneecap just kind of popped out. And it's just kind of like pushing. You know in that moment where you have the shock of seeing a bone pushing out, and then you're in all this pain? It's really quite sore. Now, not all of you may have ever had that experience before, I appreciate. But maybe some of you have dislocated your elbow, broken a joint somehow, done your thumb. In some way or another, you may have broken a bone. And I'm sure you, like me, felt at the time that this was the most excruciating thing you could ever go through. But you kind of also knew that to put it back together again was going to be even more excruciating pain, and you just didn't want it to happen. Well, The long, short story of what that story was, was that my bone did pop in, and a couple of weeks later I was off the crutches hobbling around, and the pain was forgotten, because everything had been made right. And in, I guess, the joy of my leg being back to normal, um, I'd forgotten about everything in the past, the dislocation, the hurt. Now, as trite as that example may sound... um, you would have even had from your conversations just before a little, a little inkling that things aren't right for us. The world's a bit dislocated. Things are broken and disconnected. And I'm sure uh, you, like me, would love for this dislocation to end, for things to be set right. Whether it's poverty in our streets, homelessness, Uh, people incarcerated for too long a time, or environmental catastrophes like Cyclone Irma, rogue nations running around, abortion, euthanasia, people starving in Africa. My goodness, the list goes on and on and on. Things are not right. I think it's pretty clear that the world we live in is experiencing wide-scale dislocation. And I long for this pain to be over. Don't you? Don't you want to see things set right? 
to be finished? Well, I think today we're going to be reminded that our God, the God of the Bible, has set things right and will set things right. And God does this, maybe surprisingly for some of you, through his judgment. Because from the passage we see that God's judgment is it's right because he rightly responds to sin. It's real because we see it in history. And thirdly, it's restorative because it sets right all the dislocation in our world. And it will. Three things. God's judgment is right, real, restorative. So let's look at the passage again uh, as we see how God's judgment is right because of its response to sin. Now, if you weren't with us last week or if you're a bit foggy about what Aaron preached about last week, uh, you may recall, or may not, um, that Aaron preached about a rotten vineyard in the first part of chapter 5. God rightly expected Judah to bear good fruit. He'd done everything possible to prepare the conditions for them to bear good fruit. And yet they bore bad fruit, rotten fruit. They took the blessings of God, as we saw, and used them for their own ends. And in verse 7, we saw a summary of this bad fruit. God's people lacked justice and righteousness. In fact, even more so, there was bloodshed. Their actions, Judah's actions, were quite dislocated from the blessings of God that they had taken. And in today's passage, the rest of chapter 5, we get to zoom in on six specific examples of the rotten fruit and what they look like. Each marked by the word woe. Woe, a cry of lament for how God's people are dislocated from their God. So let's look together at this woeful conduct. In verse 8, Isaiah says, Woe to you who had, who had house to house and join field to field till no space is left alone in the land. God's people have become fat, fat off their own wealth, fat off the acquisition of assets. They're greedy. But you know what? They can't stop. They just want more. Now, they're worse than my daughter Abby. Uh, in the morning for breakfast, we dish her up some porridge and inevitably, there's a cry for more. So we dish up some more porridge. And inevitably, there's a cry for more. And you can see where this is going, right? More, 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 more. That's exactly what the people of Judah were like. But what is the fruit of this greed? Well, we see that in verses 9 and 10, don't we? The great houses that they've built will become desolate. The fine mansions are left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will only yield an ephath of grain. God's people have exchanged him for greed. They've become absorbed in themselves and have tried to lift themselves up through power and status and money. But as a consequence, rather than prosperity... <laughs> There's only poverty. Rather than abundance, there's only an absence. Rather than community, 
there's only loneliness. But it doesn't stop there. The rotten fruit is how sin made them forget about God and his blessings. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Isaiah again declares, Woe to you who rise early in the morning to run after their drink, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine, who have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. The rotten fruit expresses itself as people who overindulge in alcohol. But at its root, Isaiah is really lamenting the fact that Judah is not honouring God as they ought. Instead, they, they honour themselves. They exalt themselves and they've got no regard for the Lord. You see, the people of God take the blessings that God has given them for themselves and actually forget the one who gave it to them. They become greedy and self-indulgent. Greed, forgetting God, these aren't Judah's only rotten fruit. We actually see that God's people, they've become deceived by their own sin. Turn to verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness, as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach. Let it come into view so we may know it. No woe to Judah. Isaiah laments those who've become deceived by their sin. They're so blinded by their sin, they can't actually see what the true burden of their sin is. That's what the cords of deceit are pulling. And even though they're weighed down by sin and they don't see it, they're still saying to God, you know, God, come along, hurry. They're wanting God to return and judge everything, not realising that they actually should be asking God to help them see their sin and repent of it first. But it's not just self-deception. It's not just greed and forgetfulness. No, because they're, they're forgetting what sin is, then Judah's now redefining what sin is. They've started to relativize it and redefine good and evil. And we see this in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The rotten fruit of sin is that God's people, they're redefining what is good, what is right. They redefine good for bad and vice versa. They redefine these things so that they can benefit from it. They redefine sin so they don't have to be held accountable to it, held, held accountable to a holy God. See, at its root is an unwillingness to live as God wants them to live. An unwillingness to love those things that God loves. Judah was greedy, deceived by their sin. 
but they were also filled with pride. God's people clearly thought too much of themselves. I mean, we see that in verse 21, don't we? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. At the heart of it, God's people have become self-centred, full of themselves rather than full of worship of their God. They no longer fear him. But because they no longer fear him, they then don't think that they need him. They are wise in their own eyes, puffed up by their own knowledge. But the sad thing is they're not wise in the eyes of the one who really matters, their creator God. Pride, greed, self-deception, it's all there. It's a recipe for disaster. But the final fruit that we see in this passage is God's people producing in abundance. It's a failure to do justice. Verse 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. What happens when God's people forget God's blessings? When they become focused on themselves and care only for themselves, not on him? They also forget to care for others. They forget the alien. They forget the outcast. And and where does this behaviour get them? How does God respond? Well, God responds with judgment. The sin of his people, it must be dealt with. Judah has rejected God and they've rejected his word. You see, the God of the Bible is a holy God and a just God. He doesn't tolerate sin. He tolerates neither rotten fruit in the lives of his people, nor the rotten roots of these fruit in their hearts. This sin, this greed, this pride, this self-deception... It's an offence to him, and it needs to be punished. And of course, the root of all of Judah's sins, running through all these six woes, is their complete self-centeredness. Their desire to proudly lift themselves up, rather than the God who has abundantly blessed them. So God's judgment is right because it condemns Judah's sin. A holy God who cannot stand sin judges sin. But it's not just right. It's also real. We've seen how the people of Judah have lived, producing rotten fruit, coming from rotten roots, and this has led to their judgment. Have a look again at verses 13 and 14. We're told that God's judgment is that his people will go into exile for a lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger and the common people will be parched with thirst. Death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses and all their brawlers and revelers. But it doesn't stop there, does it? No, in verse 25, we're told that the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies 
are like refuse in the streets. What a horrid picture. What a vivid picture of God's judgment. There'll be judgment for everyone. There'll be exile, there'll be death. And no matter who they are, no matter the class, no matter the age, all Judah is judged for their sin because they've exalted themselves rather than God. They've dislocated themselves, that's a break, from God. Everyone, all of God's people who are judged will be brought low and humbled. And this judgment, as we see in verses 26 to 30, it will be relentless. It will be fast and lethal. It will be swift and it will leave the land in darkness. This judgment will be complete. And look, this is not some fanciful prediction, some prophetic poetry. This actually happened in history. God's judgment did come on Judah. It came in the form of the Assyrians. The walls of Jerusalem were brought down and the temple of the Lord was desecrated. His people were killed, oppressed and carted off to a foreign land. God's judgment for his people for their sin was right and it was real. But that's not the only thing we see from this passage about God's judgment. We also see that it's restorative. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. The Lord will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as their own pasture, lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. I don't know about you, but the first thing I asked myself when I read this was what the heck is going on? God is exalted by punishing his own people. God is exalted by his justice. And he's proved holy by his righteous acts. I mean, how can this possibly be restorative? A cynical secular view of restorative is everyone sitting around in a circle singing Kumbaya. This is not the same. How can this be setting things right? Well, for Judah, God's justice was seen in him restoring himself to his rightful place. Instead of Judah lifting themselves up in their self-centeredness, God lifted himself up and Judah was brought low. He was exalted then. But of course, if we look at these rotten roots of sin in this passage, this self-indulgent, self-exalting, self-centered behavior, are we any different? Like, really? I mean, I don't know about you, but I think we're all pretty greedy. We don't want to share our riches. And, and, and we just want more. And we're proud. We don't want to admit when we're wrong. We're puffed up by our own knowledge. And sometimes we just don't want to engage with others. We're deceived by our sin. We can't really see that it offends God and it hurts others. We just want to relativize it by saying it's not so bad. 
We can't see how it impedes our ability to relate to God and others. We try to redefine it. We care only about justice for ourselves. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's no different for us now. We all want to be at the centre of our own lives, like Judah. We all want to be at the centre of our own personal solar system, exalting ourselves to be the thing that everything else rotates around. We're just little earths, but we arrogantly think that life would be a better place if we were actually in the position of the sun and it rotated around us. But in fact, it doesn't really at all work out that way. You see, the Bible tells us that we were actually made to be in a right relationship with God. Like the sun and the earth, us actually orbiting him, as opposed to the other way around. God exalted, not us. And in this passage, we see what happens when we exalt ourselves above God, don't we? We see that there's greed. We see that there's bloodshed. And we see that there's loneliness and we see that there's injustice. There's dislocation because of our sin. Friends, we're really no different to Judah. We, if we are willing to confront it, exalt ourselves every day when we say yes to things than othering God. When we take the good things he has given us and forget who gave it to us when we seek to protect our reputation or our ego, rather than humbly acknowledging when we're wrong, as an example. So why isn't it that we aren't judged in the same way that Judah is? There's no um, ancient army over the hill from us. It's because there was another occasion when God was glorified when he was lifted up and exalted. But this time, he humbled himself all the way to the cross. If you'll turn to John chapter 12, verses 27 to 33. In verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. You see, friends, it's at the cross, it's in the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that God is glorified. He is lifted up and exalted. It's at the cross that God is exalted in his justice. He's proved holy in his righteousness, for he punishes sin as it truly deserves. 
You see, the courtroom of God's judgment, in there we stand accused and we can only plead guilty. The evidence, friends, is simply stacked up too high. There's no plea deal to be done. There's no suspended sentence. There's only going to be punishment for our sins. And just like the people of Judah, that punishment for our sin is death. Because in our sin, we've also dislocated ourselves from God, the source of life. But at the cross, though we stand condemned and should be punished for our transgressions, we're not. Instead, we're saved. Not because we deserve it or we've earned it in any way, but because the one who sits in judgment, rather than convicting us, instead convicts another, his own son, so that we can be restored in our relationship to him. What a sobering thought. That the creator of the universe, our father, chose to punish his son so that we could go free. His son's life for our death penalty. This is not a plea bargain for Jesus. This is not a suspended sentence. No, this is us being set free from the punishment that we deserved so that we could be saved in exchange for his death. So when we look at the cross, we see that God still punishes sin. We see God's justice displayed. And we see that God remains holy and worthy of praise. Whether we realise it or not, the glory of a judge is in their true and correct execution of the law. This is something that I, as a lawyer, am always looking for in a court. I look to judicial officers to exercise justice in their judgments, fairness and rightness. But when judges are fair and right, that's when they're praised. That's when they're exalted. And this is all the more the same for our Heavenly Father, the judge of all. If he did not judge fairly and justly, then he would not be exalted and praised for his justice and his righteousness. And so at the cross, God truly begins the process of setting all things right, making it possible for you and I to be reconciled to him, to be made right with him. But as I said at the start, when I look around the world, there's still plenty of greed and pride, corruption, poverty and hate, etc., etc. As Christians, we know that God's judgment of sin on the cross was not the end of the matter. No, the one who was condemned rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things as our King. He is exalted, and this King will return and on the last day bring God's final justice. And on the last day, he will reign. Jesus will come back and set all things right. All wrongs will be made right. There will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. And on this last day, he will be exalted as every knee on heaven and earth bows before him and confesses that he is Lord.
In that day, the appointed judge will come back to reign and he will judge each one of us, the living and the dead. Like I said, on that day, he will set all things right. But until that day comes, if you are here and you are one of God's people, I want to challenge you to humble yourself before God again and reflect on your life, on your heart, and examine the rotten fruit that lies within. You need to come before God and repent, friends. Ask him to expose and prune the rotten fruit in your heart and life. To be humble, not proud. To be generous and not stingy. To be thankful and not be thankless. To be self-forgetting, not God-forgetting. And do so with the assurance that he will forgive you. We all need to turn away from our love of sin, our love of ourselves, and fill our hearts instead with a love for Christ, the truly exalted one, the one who had every right to remain high and exalted and yet was willing to humble himself to the lowliest of people, us, and then be lifted up on a cross. How can you truly see that picture of Christ and not be brought to your knees in humble repentance for your proud self-centeredness? How can you truly see Christ on the cross and not be moved to want to give him the love of your heart? But if you're here and you're trying to work this out for yourself, what it means to follow Jesus. I want to invite you to consider Jesus, the man who saved you from the rightful judgment you deserved. He died so that you could have life. He died so that your sin could be paid for and that this right, real, restorative judgment of God could be dealt with. He died so that you could experience in your life and in this world in the future, everything made right. In the beginning, we were asked to reflect on the greatest injustices of this world. And there are so many things I'm sure that each one of us long to be set right. But this afternoon, we've seen that God, in his right, real and restorative judgment, has done and will do just that. He will set things right because he is the God who sets things right. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that from this passage in Isaiah 5, um, this afternoon uh, you've seen fit to confront us with the reality of who we are before you. People that seek to exalt ourselves and not you. And we ask, Lord, and we pray that you would humble us again. You would expose those rotten fruit, the roots of those rotten fruit in our hearts. Expose them to us. Lord, help us to confess them to you.
so that we might be people who are thankful rather than thankless, who are generous rather than stingy, who are filled with praise and thanks to our Saviour, our Lord and King, and that he saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.